Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Last week we looked at two folds of the Noble Eightfold Path, right speech and right action. Now we'll look at the next fold, right livelihood. Right livelihood is the third and final factor of the ethics group of the path. Including it as a whole factor of the path addresses a critical issue in pursuing the higher path of practice. This is that our chosen career might limit our karmic choices during our workday in unfortunate ways. Not only might we have substantially given up control of our practice during working hours, but regardless of whether we are taking orders from another person, our actions are still a part of our practice. That is, they will still have harm or benefit and will bear fruits that shape or misshape our future development and well-being. Therefore, it's important that we choose our livelihood with great care. So, when is a particular livelihood right? We might begin by looking at our job description. Is each task mentioned consistent with right speech and right action? And while we are doing it, conducive to wholesome thought? Does a task involve deceit? Does it involve killing or otherwise harming living beings? Does it entail taking what is not given freely? Does it involve or encourage misuse of sexuality? If a livelihood forces us to act habitually with greedy or cruel intentions, our character will develop to be marked by greed or cruelty. Consider that when we take on employment, we rent ourselves out, such that our boss predetermines many or most of our choices during our workday. Effectively, his practice becomes our practice. This means that our character might come more and more to resemble that of our boss rather than our dharmic ideals. The Buddha specifically points out the following as characteristic of wrong livelihoods. Scheming, persuading, hinting, belittling, usury. Which sound embarrassingly like a modern corporate business model. It suggests that it would be a challenge to find right livelihood in sales or marketing or in investment. But exceptions may exist for many otherwise wrong livelihoods where intentions remain pure. The Buddha also listed the following as livelihoods to be avoided. Business in weapons. This includes hunting, fishing, soldiering, or weapons design, manufacture, and use. 
Second business in intoxicants. This includes tending bar, selling or producing alcohol, pushing drugs, growing opium, and so on. Modern allowances should be made for compassionate medicinal uses of intoxicants and poisons. It should be noted that Benedictine monks would no longer be able to brew beer if the Buddha had a say in the matter. Third, business in meat. This includes raising animals for slaughter, slaughter itself, or selling meat. Business in poison. This would include manufacturing pesticides and herbicides, but also applying them to crops. This would include their use in pest extermination. Business in human beings. In the Buddha's day, this had to do with dealing in slaves and prostitutes. Notice that these criteria are broader than those of the more standard precepts in that they also prescribe providing supporting conditions for others to violate precepts. To manufacture a weapon is not to kill directly, but certainly provides a condition for that. To sell someone a drink is to be implicated in intoxication even if we remain completely sober ourselves. In this way, right livelihood reaches beyond the letter of the simple precepts. But then, in wrong livelihood, one might be repeatedly and relentlessly implicated in such behaviors over the course of one's entire career. Nonetheless, many of us are forced into wrong livelihoods, generally because our options are limited and we need the income that whatever work we can get provides. If we have a debt or a family to feed, our own property or possessions that must be maintained and insured, we are forced into earning a certain level of income, narrowing our choice of livelihood. Right livelihood raises an important question already alluded to. If we're compelled by our boss to sell pesticides to a customer and to convince him he needs two cans where one would do, is it really our bad karma? If our act of killing an enemy combatant is under orders of our commanding officer, are we breaking a precept or is he? After all, if we don't do it, someone else will. So aren't we off the hook? The Buddhist answer is much like the decision of the Nuremberg trial. We are not off the hook. Orders are not just orders. We're still the heir of our own karma, as we'll see in later talks. This actually reflects how such actions affect the mind. For instance, combat veterans are known to commit acts of domestic violence at rates much higher than the general population, though they had presumably just followed orders while they were at war. Military training and combat experience leaves deep ruts with psychological implications. This conclusion may have awkward practical consequences for it often puts us in the position of choosing between failing to care for our families and compromising our practice. Now, monastics 
have the great benefit of what might be called the ideal livelihood, that is, none. First, in order to be ordained into the Sangha, one must be quite free of conventional societal obligations. No wealth, no debt, no family responsibilities. Second, one lives entirely outside of the exchange economy, at least ideally. Third, one has relative autonomy in day-to-day affairs. Rarely is there anyone else telling us what to do, and the communal activities of a monastery are relatively benign. The factor of right livelihood was clearly included in the path with laity in mind, who often must find a balance between societal obligations and choice of livelihood. Reducing obligations as much as possible is nonetheless an option in the lay life. For instance, living simply, buying used merchandise, and avoiding credit card debt. This might serve to expand the range of livelihood options. Karma. Virtue in Buddhism is founded on a principle that equates our own benefit or harm with the benefit or harm we intend for others. This principle has been described in my earlier talks on Buddhist life, but I'll briefly summarize it here. Karma, kamma, or Sanskrit karma, is defined by the Buddha as intentional action. The action itself may be of body, speech, or mind. The relationship between karma and the results or fruits of karma are primarily motivation principles by which we find our own relative well-being within samsara, in the practices of giving, of harmlessness, and of purity of mind. We'll see how the Buddhist path brings out distinct aspects of karma that turns our practice from making good karma to ending karma altogether. It's easy to appreciate how karma is relevant to virtue but also how, more generally, all Buddhist practice is karma. The ethical quality of a deed is inherent in the intention itself. Roughly, whether we intend harm or benefit to others, or whether we are motivated by the quest for personal advantage or by concern for others. The Buddha called the first of each of these pairs unwholesome or unskillful, and the second class, wholesome or skillful. Unwholesome intentions are rooted in greed, hatred, or delusion. Wholesome intentions are rooted in at least one of their opposites, renunciation, goodwill, and wisdom. The practices of merit-making that is, performing generous deeds for the benefit of others, and adhering to precepts, avoiding the pitfalls that lead to harm for others, fall into accord with wholesome intentions and into discord with unwholesome intentions. It's natural to think that benefit or harm for others 
and benefit or harm for ourselves are two opposing matters, and that ethical conduct is a balancing act between the two. The Buddha saw it differently. I will be the heir of whatever deeds, good or bad, that I do. Our karmic acts not only shape the world for others, but also shape our own character at the same time. Good deeds work to our own benefit as well as to the benefit of others. Unwholesome deeds work against our own spiritual development as well as against the benefit of others. The principle is described as follows. Greed, hatred, and delusion, friend, make one blind, unseeing, and ignorant. They destroy wisdom, are bound up with distress, and do not lead to nibbana. If the effect of one's own action accrued for oneself is its karmic result or fruit, we can talk likewise about the result or fruits of wholesome aspects of practice, whereby we experience the results of properly directed practice as personal well-being culminating in awakening and improperly directed practice as personal hardship. Without producing results, practice would have no purpose. Every deed has the potential for producing significant karmic results. For this reason, we should see the danger in the slightest fault. This requires the help of precepts, of understanding the consequences of our actions in the world, and of close monitoring of the purity of our intentions under all circumstances. An immediate consequence of the practice of ethics is that we progressively weaken craving, a key factor in the Four Noble Truths and in the standard chain of dependent co-arising. As craving is weakened, suffering diminishes. Since craving is also the weakest link in the standard chain of dependent co-arising, Subsequent factors are also weakened in particular. We become less attached to things and less obsessed with our sense of identity, preparing for the eventual collapse of the chain through the development of wisdom. Notice how firmly ethics in early Buddhism is based in psychology and the pressing need to end suffering. It's been pointed out that this is in sharp contrast to the common view of ethics as a system of potentially arbitrary values imposed on our actions that define what we ought to do. The ought in this case is not a command, but rather the compulsion to try to cure or relieve the human spiritual pathology. The fine-grained intentional aspect of karma is a formation, sankara, and therefore belongs to the fourth aggregate, kanda, discussed in recent talks. A formation is a choice which can commit us to a particular physical or verbal action, but can also 
be a particular way of conceiving or perceiving, planning, or designing. Formations are often called volitional formations. We might think of them as little packets of free will, but we must be aware that they are much less free than condition, rarely deviating from certain limits except in moments of brilliant deliberation. Generally, formations arise without our even noticing them simply by following well-worn habit patterns or dispositions. Through Buddhist practice, we become more aware of formations as choice points. That is, we become brilliantly deliberative. I like to think of formations as forming a landscape deeply rutted by ox cart tracks thereby mentally situating the landscape in the Buddha's ancient world. The wheels are disposed to falling into the deepest ruts, and when they do so, these ruts become even deeper. But we're always, in principle, free to steer towards open ground, beginning a new rut, or choose the rut less traveled on, which might well make all the difference. Formations are also sometimes called dispositions, emphasizing the ruts rather than the new choices, or karmic results rather than karma itself. In this simile, the current state of the fabricated landscape is what is sometimes called old karma, whereas any choice to follow or break out of the established ruts is called new karma. Our character at any point reflects old karma, since old karma largely determines our choices, how we perceive and experience things, how we respond to evolving conditions, etc. But old karma is continually being shaped by new karma, particularly deliberate choices that defy the attraction of the ruts. Our practice of ethics takes us out of the ruts which habituate greed and hatred into directions in which our character evolves for the better, producing sweeter karmic fruits. The word vinaya, the guidebook of monastic conduct, actually means leading in a different direction. It's through our actions that we make and remake our karmic landscape that we make and remake our character. There's another aspect of karma that makes this process even more imperative. The Buddha saw that karmic results reached beyond the bounds of the individual life and that the practice of awakening typically spans many lives, that we have been engaged in an epic battle with karmic forces from beginningless time. This puts our lives into a much broader context and our practice into a much wider perspective. In fact, old karma, the root of character, coalesces into a sense of individuality or self that we call becoming. And so it is karma that prepares that sense forward into another life a process that ends with awakening. We'll see more about how this process occurs in future talks.
After many years of practicing ethics in this way, we can expect our character to become marked by virtue, at which time little trace will remain in us of the ruts that once turned us toward craving, ill will, or harm. We are, in effect, made of ethics, accumulation of wholesome old karma that has made us content and destined for a heavenly realm. This sounds awfully good, but there's nonetheless a deeper, more subtle level of impurity that remains still untouched. We'll stop here. Next week, we'll talk about a subtle aspect of karma. With full awakening, there's activity in the world, but no karma. Then we'll say some things about practicing virtue in our lives.